All right, well, welcome. This is the Digital Instructor, uh, episode number nine. Uh, today we're calling this um, First Principles of Instruction and uh, how that impacts the digital instructor. My name is Dr. Tim Stafford uh, from St. Thomas University, and uh, I am your host, as always. And today we have a very, very special guest. We're going to have a really great conversation. I hope that, um, I, I just believe this is going to be valuable, whether you're teaching, frankly, whether you're teaching in the classroom or whether you're teaching online. I mean, we, on our program, we tend to look at online learning, uh, particularly a digital instruction, uh, instruction in digital spaces. But what we're going to talk about today is really foundational to all instructional design, all, all instruction, all training. Um, it has been for a long time. And if you haven't ever been exposed to these things, um, these principles today, I think this is going to be very valuable for you. Our special guest is Dr. Max Cropper. Um, he's an award-winning instructional designer. He's got his PhD in instructional technology and learning sciences. Uh, he has studied and researched and developed and implemented, taught comprehensive instructional design and performance management models. He's worked for a, a slew of clients, uh, everything from the Office of Secretary, the National Institute of Health, Western Governors University, Utah State, University of Phoenix, Hewlett Packard, Brigham Young, and so many others. And so we're just honored to have um, Dr. Cropper with us today. And uh, Dr. Cropper, thanks so much for being a part of, of the Digital Instructor Podcast. Well, I'm excited to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, now, now tell us, you're a part of a, of a consulting group. So tell us a little bit about what kinds of work you're doing right now and what you're engaged in. Just give our listeners an, a, a, a sense of kind of what you're doing right now. Uh, what I'm doing right now is uh, I'm giving a lot of presentations and webinars, doing podcast interviews, uh, because I think most people are not applying Merrill's first principles of instruction. They're not that hard to apply, but it does take a little bit of effort to understand them and apply them. And then also I'm beginning a, a certification program where I'll train and certify instructional designers to, to develop five-star instruction based on first principles of instruction. Oh, that isn't, wow, that is, that's awesome. And so you can sign me up for that. I will definitely be a part of that. I think that's, that's a very important thing. So let's talk a little bit about David Merrill. Um, many of our listeners may know who David Merrill is. I mean, he's still with us, of course. Uh, he's, he's been a, a, a really a, a beacon um, in the world of learning and training and development. But uh, many of our listeners may not know who David Merrill is. So maybe you could give us a little bit of, of background on who David Merrill is and, and your association with him. Sure. Uh, so uh, Dave Merrill... He has been developing instructional design theories for many, many years. And uh, when I was uh, starting my master's program at Brigham Young University in instructional science, uh, he, was, he was leaving uh, BYU at the time, but I attended some presentations and read some of his works and became acquainted with his early instructional design theories. And uh, he, went on, he went on to USC where he had a big influence there on Richard Clark and others. And uh, in the meantime, I, uh, I used his in early instructional design theories for my master's project. Uh, later, I, I used and taught his uh, component display theory and uh, studied his component design theory. Uh, when he came back to Utah State University, I, I attended a number of, of uh, Instructional Technology Institutes up there that he organized. And be, I became 
familiar with his instructional transaction theory. And then mm -hmm. uh, about the time I went back for a doctorate at Utah State, that's when he int introduced his first principles of instruction. And so I, f I followed his work and he's just uh, been amazing. He's always been uh, many steps ahead of me. You know, I've studied a lot of instructional design theories and created my own comprehensive models and so on and so forth. But he always seems to be way, way ahead. And then, then for my uh, doctoral dissertation, uh, we evaluated some online university courses uh, based on uh, using a rubric that he developed, a five-star rubric based on his first principles of instruction. Right. And he was right. on my, he was on my uh, doctoral committee and uh, he was our baseline evaluator for these courses, uh, these six, 10 online courses. So for six of those courses, he gave zero out of 100 points possible score for those, <laughs> for those, <laughs> for these undergra undergraduate online courses. And we had, wow. so we had to exclude four of those courses because they didn't have enough information online to validly evaluate them. But uh, even if they'd had enough information, I suspect they would have scored pretty low. So, uh, you know, lest people in business industry, government, and military think that their courses are better, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, and, and just in case you're listening to this and you're thinking about doing a doctorate, uh, Dr. Cropper just, just explained how brutal it is. It's brutal. But oh. it's, it's worth it. It's worth it, but it's brutal. I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's, that's great. Yeah, that's the truth, though, because, you know, so much of the time, um, I love what you said in one of your articles. You, you talked about uh, the difference between uh, receiving uh, uh, torturous, I think you said it was something like torturous versus non-torturous instruction or something like that. <laughs> and torturous instruction is instruction that ultimately, um, you know, it, it just isn't effective. I mean, you know, you're, you're, I mean, I can't tell you how many torturous professional development pieces I've been through where you're just like, Oh my goodness, this is just, this is just terrible. And it is be, I think it's because would you say, I mean, would you be in agreement with me that a lot of it is because the just basic principles of instruction are just not realized or applied in the right way? Is that the reason why it would become what you call torturous? Yeah, I think what has, has happened is traditionally most instruction is topic-based and it's information-based. And, and Merrill, right. says, Merrill says that uh, information-only instruction has no value. And, right, right. And, and I, think that, I think it has no long-term value. There may be some value, but uh, the real value comes when you teach with real-world tasks that people are going to need to be able to perform. And, right. and that's, that's right. basically uh, how, how first principles of instruction are laid out, is you teach, you demonstrate how to, how to perform real-world tasks, and then you uh, give guided practices, participants uh, practice those tasks. Yeah. Yeah, so let's look at this. Let's let's look at these. I mean, you know, we've we've talked about Merrill. We've we've established that there are some foundational principles that, you know, instructional designers certainly need to understand, but but instructors as well. That, you know, the way that good coursework works, the what 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 is efficacious is to be, you know, grounded in these principles. So let's talk about these a little bit. So the first one on his list is what you've already mentioned, which is it needs to be task centered. Um, 
you know, I think he said something to the effect of that, it, you know, learning prom is promoted when learners uh, acquire certain concepts and skills that they can apply to real world scenarios. And so how, in your mind, if I'm a digital instructor teaching a course, how do I stay focused on the tasks? How do I, is, is there a way for me to, to be able to really think about that? And how do I, what's the best way for me to kind of begin to help promote that kind of orientation? Because I may be teaching a course to somebody else built. And so how do I, how do I do that? What, what, what are your, what are your suggestions and your thoughts? Well, the first thing that you need to do is uh, work with your stakeholders and identify significant real-world tasks that they want the learners to be able to perform. Because ta task selection is very, very important. And you need, you need some tasks as for demonstration, maybe one or more mm -hmm. tasks for demonstration, and then you need some uh, variations of the real-world tasks for practice, for application. And then hopefully you can uh, have them point, you know, point themselves in the direction so that they can implement those those same tasks, you know, in the real work environment or the, you know, real world environment. So, so that these the selection of these tasks and scenarios or problems is absolutely critical, and they need mm -hmm. to be significant, real world, meaningful, uh, but they should be the same types of challenges that they would face on the job or in the real world. And, and, and basically that's, that's the answer, is, is picking these correct tasks. Once okay, you, so. Once you do that, then, then it's just a matter of saying, okay, how are we gonna demonstrate? You know, provide good demonstration, <laughs> good application, good guidance and practice. So it really starts with a, a, a level of what do we want them to be able to do? Is that, is that what I'm hearing you say? Exactly. And it seems to me that that part of Merrill's work, I'm not sure that he ever says this directly, although he might, you know, knowing, knowing his writing, uh, he's very, he's very articulate, but, but I, I'm wondering, you know, it seems to me like in his writing, he intimates that, that understanding doing is, is a much, it's a much greater measurement uh, than understanding or that or being able to measure doing is a much greater measurement than necessarily managed knowing which is hard hard to manage it, it's hard to manage if a person knows something we only really can know if they know something based on what they can do am, am i saying that right is that is that reflective of what he would say as far as this issue of tasks yes and what's what's interesting is is he says don't don't write objectives and yeah, that's interesting, right? Because, because, and my, my feeling is uh, objectives can obscure the real world tasks. You can get lost in the weeds. And I, right. I've, seen, I've seen way too many identify objectives <laughs> and, right. and, just, right. and describe. Right. But if, if you select the right real, real world tasks, then people have to know because they, they've got to know so they can do. And so the knowing, right. the knowing becomes a significant part of the intelligent doing. Because they've got to know what to right. do, what decisions right. to make, how to proceed, 
you know, what traps to avoid so they can perform tasks successfully. But, uh, but ultimately they should be doing the tasks intelligently. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Right. There's a knowing behind the doing. There's a, there's an understanding behind the doing, you know, and that's something that we really, we really struggle with in higher education that we really struggle with in, in corporate, in these corporate type, you know, applications is we tend to, to make, and I, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as, as anybody. I mean, it's hard to get people to change because their idea is we want to have these almost esoteric sounding objectives, but even when you base them on blooms, blooms taxonomy or some other, something like that, it's so much of, of the ability to do that. So like a good example is if I say, well, I want them to create a mind map, you know, for instance, that's about this. Well, there's a lot of skills that go, there's a lot of do's and knowing that goes behind even creating the mind map. I mean, I got to still, I got to teach them how to do that first before they can. So there's this, this scaffolding problem in, in, in this, that I just think that we set it up in a way that they're never going to get the real value out of the tasks because we're so, we're so, you know, focused on these objectives, which you're right, are a lot of times uh, fairly worthless. I mean, I don't even know that, that are even all that measurable. And even if we could measure them, which a lot of times we, we convince ourselves we can, we're not really measuring the right thing. We're measuring the output of something, but we're not really measuring whether that, that actually was critically correct or whether a person understood the nuance of it or anything like that. We just, because that's not real world, it's, it's, it's kind of made up, you know? And so uh, I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, so uh, I used to teach how to write robust objectives, and and I've I've written all kinds of of good objectives, but uh, what happens is when you identify real world tasks, the tasks become the objectives, and it's right, and it's right. also it's also critical to do task analysis. Uh, I recommend that. Uh, instructional designers and trainers always do hierarchical task analysis. You know, this is from, mm. uh, this is from Gagné, but it's kind of a lost art. But if you do hierarchical task analysis, then you identify all of the subtasks, all of the knowledge, all of the skills that are necessary to perform the whole task. And then when you do your demonstration and application, you can make sure you include mm those component tasks, you know, the component knowledge and skills. Right. And, and what that does also right. is it, it helps you focus on task-centered instruction instead of topic-centered instruction. So you're teaching the topics within the tasks. Okay, here's, here's how you perform the task, but these are the things that you need to know to perform it intelligently and correctly. And so... Got it. So right. the t- the tasks right. become the skeleton uh, for for your instruction. So you're creating objectives in context, is what I'm hearing you say. It, it's here's what we want you to be able to do, but here's what you got to know in order to do that. And yes. so that's that's the order. And so we're not we're not we're so immediately um, we're already assigning the measurement because if you can do these tasks then we know that you know 
what you need to know to do them. You see what right. I mean? It, it, it's counterintuitive to the way we're taught to do this. You know, it's like I come up with this crazy, you know, that this thing. I want them to. I, you, what you said earlier is so great. I want them to be to identify this, or I want them to be able to, you know, and 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 yet, you know, really, what we need them to be able to do is a set of tasks. You know, I mean, there's look. We want you to be able to yes. do this. Um, we want you to be able to map out a course. You know, here's how to do that. Here's what you need to know. Here's the form that we want you to put it in. Go. You know, I mean that, and 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 we'll help you along the way. That becomes a much more effective course. I, I have a course that we teach at St. Thomas um, about course mapping, and uh, and it's and it's funny because I have to step by step go with the students. Uh, we, we meet on Zoom every week, and step by step, I go through the students of, okay, so. Um, you know, here are the things that you want them to be able to do. And so what are you going to do to get them there? And it's amazing, Dr. Cropper, they'll say to me over and over again, I've never thought about instruction like this before. I've never thought about the tasks and how it's not about the technology. It's about how technology is used to perform the tasks. The tasks are the issue. Right. And it's just over and over again, they say that to me, you know, and, and yet then I'll go down the hall, you know, and work with an SME who I just cannot get them there. I cannot, I mean, so, okay, well, what is it that you want them to be able to do and what do they need to know? That, that's a conversation we're having all the time, but it's really tough for people um, to understand that because the tasks are at such a granular level. And I don't think that a lot of people get to that granular level um, all the time, you know, and I, that's really, that's really interesting what you're saying. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's interesting to see the paradigm shift. Uh, we did a workshop with uh, uh, Dave Merrill uh, back in October at AACT. <laughs> and in the morning, we demonstrated how to develop five-star instruction. And, and uh, Dave Merrill got there a little bit late. And he walked in. We only had about 15 participants, which was uh, really ideal. Right. So he walks in with a walker. You know, he, yeah. And he walks, yeah. he walks in slowly. He's 85 years old. And yeah. but the room was just like silent because these people are thinking, oh my goodness, here's, here's Dave Merrill. But he, uh, he shared with us how he'd worked with the uh, faculty of the American University of Nigeria. And he had reviewed 165 syllabi and given feedback based on first principles of instruction and provide a kind of a simple evaluation form. And uh, you think of that, evaluating 165 oh. syllabi carefully. Unbelievable. And, giving, right. and right. giving feedback, and then he talked about how some of the faculty members had dramatically upgraded their courses. Not all of them had, but at least he'd given them feedback and they'd done some improvement. So. And so in the morning, he, he shared that. We showed how to develop five-star instruction. And in the afternoon, we helped participants uh, in groups and as individuals design some five-star courses at a high level. And it was, just, it was just remarkable to see the paradigm shift. You know, right. and so, some of them were already pretty well primed. But... but uh, uh, Rio McBride uh, from Full Sail University 
we helped him redesign a course on instructional design. And he was so excited. I've never seen anybody so excited. And we right. just, we mapped right. out this, the design for this course. But when you get that new paradigm and say, oh, we're teaching for real world tasks. What are the real world tasks? The real world performance. Right. In this case, they were designing uh, media pieces for instruction. And so we, in, we integrated, say, well, these media pieces need to use real world tasks. Right. And, you know, the light kind of right. comes, light comes on and it's like, oh my goodness. Uh, and since then he's designed another course and, and he'll be actually facilitating with us next, uh, next November at AACT, yeah. sharing these examples. Yeah, that's, you see, that's the thing. I think we have to give, we have to empower and give uh, our students uh, and ourselves the permission to be granular, it, it, to the, the permission to say, what do I really want them to be able to do? I, I know for myself, the first time, I said this to you before we got started today, but the first time I ever read Dave Merrill's first principles and I read about this thing, this task-oriented thing, I remember sitting at my desk, I was doing an online, uh, I, I did my my uh, graduate work at Capella. So I was, I was sitting at home in the middle of the night because the babies were in bed. And I remember saying to myself, right, that's it. It was, it was like a big light bulb. Like, yeah, right. That's it. That's it. That's right. What do I want them to be able to do? That's the, that's the thing, you know? And, and, uh, and it was funny because, because it, it just, it's such a, it's such a big light bulb when people realize it and I, and, and we spent a lot of time on it. I want to get onto the others, but the thing about it is you have to spend a lot of time on this because what I love about the model and, and um, you've written some articles as well that have showed up at Merrill's model is task centered is right in the middle of the model. It's not, it's not one of the pieces. It's, it is it. It's if you can develop the, the, the tasks the rest of it falls into place because then we start asking questions with regards to the task, like number two, which is the activation piece where we start to talk about what prior knowledge do they bring to the table? You know, what, what do they already know? It's kind of like um, a guy I read uh, recently, um, a guy named Guy White who does a lot on dissertations. He'll tell students, you know, you need to find what do we know? What don't we know? And then he says, the more important question is, what do the people who know things say we don't know or should know? It's the idea of what prior knowledge are we bringing to the table? You know? And so let's talk a little bit about that. What, how does prior knowledge, then given that we're able, I mean, I realize we could spend an entire hour talking nothing about tasks, and we probably should, but let's just, for the sake of moving on, let's say that we have an idea that, okay, I'm going to have these real-world tasks. How do I begin to apply then, or how do I begin to understand how to, how to add the, the element of prior knowledge to this as a designer and as an instructor, how do I do that? What are some ways that I can kind of understand what the students are coming with already and what they already know or don't know, or how, how does that work? All right. So uh, before we leave the tasks, I, I've got to share an experience. Okay, sure. That recently, sure, I, sure, sure. Uh, I gave a presentation to uh, graduate students in instructional technology at a major university. And partway through the presentation, I asked them why it was so important to teach with real-world tasks. 
and I probably, mm. I, I probably had 40 master's students, four or five doctoral students, six, six faculty members, and I got a blank stare. Right. I got a blank stare, and somebody finally volunteered an answer, but it was very, you know, very kind of tentative. <laughs> and, and I said, how are people going to be able to perform real-world tasks unless we teach with real-world tasks? And, right. and so, um, that being said, we've got to teach with the real-world tasks. Now, for activation, we need, we do, it's a good idea to activate their pre previous knowledge. Uh, I developed a, a tinnitus course uh, for the Veterans Administration a few years back, and uh, we had uh, I developed an instructional strategy coach that was built into an authoring tool so that mm -hmm. the, the trainers and the instructors for the Veterans Administration could develop five-star online instruction. And for, we used, I used a tinnitus course. Uh, tinnitus is a hearing uh, deficiency mm -hmm. among a lot of veterans right. and other people where they have this ringing in their ears that won't go away. And so for activation, we had a short video clip of, of Sam, a tinnitus patient, meeting with a primary care physician. And so basically we're setting up the scenario of, okay, here's the situation. Now we could have done a pretest with the doctors and the audiologists, the psychologists. We didn't do that, but we could have done a pretest and given them a situation and say, okay, what will you, how would you proceed? You know, right. and, and so that's one way of doing it. You can do a pretest. You can also ask people, okay. you know, what are their, you know, what are their previous knowledge and conceptions? And often there's misconceptions. <laughs> so there's what right. they know, what they know, and what they don't know, and what they know that isn't so. And so this is an also an opportunity to to uh, take those misconceptions and correct those. And you can also provide, Merrill talks about providing kind of a preview of what they're going to be able to do. And so, so this activation can basically get their minds aligned and their efforts aligned to mm. knowing what they're going to be able to do and uh, knowing, kind of bridging the information for what they already know to what they're going to learn. That's a really great, I mean, that's a great idea. I mean, any instructor, any, any instructor doing, you know, in any subject can give um, a pretest in the sense that it doesn't necessarily have to, you know, every time I say the word test, I, you know, I instantly think, oh, we got to develop a quiz. That isn't, that isn't necessarily, but, you know, even if you have a conversation, what is that conversation right there that you had one question? Why do we need to teach based on task and not based on just topic? And, and just having that conversation with the students, which we can have now face-to-face -face with Zoom even, even in online learning, you know, having that and looking at their eyes and looking at that and then saying to them, well, the reason we want to do that is because we want them to perform real-world tasks. How are they going to perform real-world tasks if we don't teach them real-world tasks, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and then they go, right. But that having that, and so then you can ask them something like, so what do we know about teaching people real world tasks? And if the answer is, we don't know anything about that, well, now you know their prior knowledge. 
But if they come with some prior knowledge of that, whether it be through experience or education or whatever, well, at least you can get it. It's like a, and when I taught high school, I taught high school for a while, you know, I think we all kind of had to cut our teeth uh, there, you know, and I had a colleague who was a, a, she was an English teacher and every single year uh, she was notorious. I mean, like infamous about uh, if you were in Mrs. Clark's class, the first day of school, she had them write uh, an essay in class. And she gave them, she said, hello. I mean, it was literally, hello, my name is Mrs. Clark. I'm your English teacher. Get out a piece of paper. I mean, it was literally, and she had them write an essay. And the essay every year was something to the effect of, it was different every year. She, she pined over these, and I think she rotated them. But it was something like, how do you make a peanut butter sandwich? It was something like that. And, 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 and so in, she told me, I remember asking her one time about it. She said, in my mind, that one assignment is the most critical thing I do all year because I know exactly where my classes are, what they know, what they know, how they know what to write. And I know what to teach them. I know what to teach them as far as I can't just keep giving them essays and expect them to get better. I can take that essay and say, okay, they, they don't understand, you know, they don't understand how to do this job. And I think the other part I, I think I'm leaving out as I'm remembering this story now is it used to be a thousand words and to a kid in high school, a thousand words is just, it's in, it's, it's like a novel. Right. And so I think she said it had to be like 800 to a thousand words. And she said, it's just, they're awful. She goes, they're awful. But the idea is she, she evaluated their prior knowledge right away. And at the time I thought she was just brilliant. It wasn't until I got later on in my career that I realized, no, that's what we all should be doing. We all should be having that first conversation, that first thing saying, okay, so what do we already know? What, what do we already, you know, let's, let's come up with a set of questions. And any instructor can do that and, and activate that and realize, and it's okay if, the, I think the, problem, the other problem is, Dr. Cropper, is that sometimes we don't like the news, you know? It's like, we don't want the news to be the bad news that they don't know anything, but that's okay that they don't know anything. It's okay. We just know where to start, you know? I think that's what Dr. Clark, or Mrs. Clark, rather, that's what she taught me a long time ago was she didn't really care that they were all bad. She just wanted to know. She wanted to know what the news was. And I think that's, that's, that's important. And so I'm, I'm, I, you know, I appreciate, I appreciate that, that pre-test idea. Um, okay. So then the next one is demonstration. And you had mentioned this before. Um, Merrill you know, says that learning is promoted when learners observe a demonstration of skills. I, every time I read this, I think the same thing that a lot of people have always said over the years that people who don't, can't do teach, you know, <laughs> and this is the absolute, uh, this is an answer to that right here. If I can demonstrate the skill, you know, then, then, then they, they have something to, to mimic. I mean, they have something, I mean, I, demonstrating the skill is so important. So what are some, what are some really good ways that you have found you know, five-star instructional ways that they, that skills get demonstrated. What are some of those founding kind of principles to, to what good demonstration is? Well, demonstration needs to be comprehensive, you know, in terms of what they don't already know how to do. And so this, this is where the hierarchical task analysis comes in because you will have identified all of the tasks and, and the subtasks. And for example, for the, uh, for the tinnitus course, 
uh, I did a hierarchical task analysis, and now there was some existing course materials, so I curated those into five-star instruction. But doing the uh, hierarchical task analysis made it really obvious what the component skills, in this case, they had five phases of, of treatment. And so I realized, okay, I need, we need to demonstrate all five phases of tinnitus treatment. And now we're working with doctors and audiologists and psychologists that are very, very smart people, but they may not know all of the ins and outs of these processes. So uh, I just made sure that the demonstration included all of the tasks and the subtasks, you know, everything that had to be done as the primary care physician uh, worked with the, uh, the tinnitus patient named Sam, and uh, he works with him, and then he sends him to an audiologist. And what was interesting is in this course, we started the application immediately. So with the first, with the first patient, Sam, we, we integrated application. And so at certain points in the scenario, we'd ask the learner, in this case, the doctor or the audiologist, the psychologist, uh, what would you do at this point? And so uh, we'd demonstrate some, we'd give them an opportunity to uh, uh, practice, put in their recommendations, and then they'd see the expert response. And so doctors and doctors are very competitive. And so they want <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they want, every, most people are, they want to have the right response. So, so we let them do text entry and then they could compare their answer with the expert answer and we, you know, we took them th uh, through the whole process. You know, mostly demonstration, but some application through the first scenario. And then after that, the next the following scenarios, it was all application. You know, mm. we'd given them enough demonstration. They're very smart people. I mean, these are doctors and audiologists with a lot of experience. And uh, ultimately, hopefully, you know, they, they can master mastered the different scenarios and when uh, patients walk in the door they'll know okay this is what we need to do that's so interesting my my father is a mechanic uh, a diesel mechanic and he used to teach courses at the local community college on transmissions his his particular specialty is automatic transmissions and um he used to say something really interesting uh, it, as soon as you said that it brought it to mind he used to say you know tim just because people are smart doesn't mean they're skilled. And he says, I see that a lot. I have a lot of really smart students, but, but they, they are not skilled. And so unless I'm under the car with them, cranking bolts, they're not going to be able to do this job. It doesn't matter how smart they are. And I think that's so true about what you're saying, you know, that demonstration. And I love how you talk about this hierarchy of, of skill because what skills are at the base and it's perceptual, you know, which, what, what are the skills? How do they build up? You know, and, and, uh, and that's the problem. I, by the way, that's the problem I've always had with Bloom's taxonomy. It, it's not that I don't like Bloom's taxonomy, but you can't just shoot for create if you don't have understand, you know, I, I mean, I know it's not understand anymore. I think it's remember now, but, yeah. but the idea is if I don't have the skills at the bottom, I can't do the skill at the top. There's, there's a, there's a certain, 
actualization of that 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 I, I find I find that to be true. And so when you talk about these hierarchy of skills, that's right. You can be very smart people that aren't skilled. And so these demonstrations are the actual skills. Here here's the actual the actual thing I need you to do, and um, or that you that we need you to be able to do. This is it, and that's that's really interesting. I mean, that's interesting that you say that. Yeah, the uh, the demonstration of the real world task is very critical, and that it needs to be a very robust, you know, comprehensive task, so that you're demonstrating a majority of the the skills and the associated knowledge you know, that they're going to need to be able to do. Right. So good. So good. Well, let's move on to chapter or to number four, which is application, which learning is promoted when learners apply the newly acquired knowledge. Every time I read this, I think about word problems in math. Remember, they used to do that. We practice. This is the old days. I realize we probably don't do this as much anymore. But back in the old days, you know, we used to do all these these drills. You know, we, how to add and or subtract or multiply or whatever. We were doing fractions, and then they would give you this real world application. You know, yeah. and uh, and so and they would give you a whole bunch of information you didn't need, and you did. You know, they did all these things because they were trying to see. If you could take these newly acquired skills and apply them in what they felt like was a real world scenario, you know, they were kind of making these up. Is that kind of what this application piece is or am I off there? Well, when, when you uh, talk about real world scenarios, uh, that's the key. And uh, I have a little story to tell. So, so uh, <laughs> one, of my, one of my pilot uh, studies for my doctoral degree, uh, we evaluated some online courses. And one of those courses was an SAT preparation course. Mm-hmm. And, and Dave Merrill was our baseline evaluator for his rubric. And we also used some other rubrics for comparison. So, so uh, a, a few of us scored the SAT course quite high. And Merrill didn't score it so high. And so, mm. so even though it had a lot of scenarios, he says, those are a lot of little scenarios. Where's the whole task, you know? And so he, mm. he's, very much, he's very much of a purist saying, okay, folks, let's have a real world whole task. And then let's, let's have that task encompass all of the types of issues and problems and scenarios, you know, these little scenarios uh, that make up the SAT, SAT test. Uh, now he didn't exactly say that, but that's that's base, basically <laughs> what that's basically what he was right. saying. And so, when right. everything's said and done, let's have a robust real-world scenario, you know, for right. So it's not just little, not just little partial scenarios that are unrelated to other scenarios. Let's have a complete scenario that somebody's going to have to do on the job or in real life that, you know, that applies all of the problems, the, you know, mathematical problems or all the statistical, you know, studies, whatever, an evaluation. Uh, so he's really, he really emphasizes the idea about whole task. <laughs> yeah, whole task, right, right. Because, it, well, it, it goes back to what you're saying before. If there's a hierarchy of, of tasks... 
writing writing a a real world task that shows the ability to all of those things yes at some level or another that's a much better measurement than if I just kind of pick some tasks and say, can you do the tasks? I, how do all those tasks build into a whole? Yes. It, it, the whole may, the whole a, a, a proverbially may be greater than the sum of the parts. So I've right. got to make sure that they can do the whole thing. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And this, that's where the selection of the real world tasks, the real world scenarios is so important that they represent the, the skills and the competencies and the accomplishments, you know, that these people need right. to be able to do in the real world. And, and I want the listeners, or, or it may be that, that I'm sharing this video with some of my own students, I, I don't know, but mostly listeners, that, you know, think, I just want to point you back to the idea that what Dr. Cropper and, and I are continuing to talk about here is we're going back to the tasks. It's back to, the, it, I want you to see how critical this hierarchy of tasks are to the success of the students in whatever you're teaching. If, if you know, because every time we go to one of these, these kind of outside, you know, if you, if you I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include a, an article from Dr. Cropper in the notes uh, that I have, and I'm going to, that's on his LinkedIn, plus I'm going to, and it's got, it's got a model. You'll see it when you look at it. You'll see it's right in the center. And that's because everything always points back to that. It, it, it feeds the other. You can't, you have to be focused if you're going to do this model with the five-star model, you have to look at the tasks and how that works. And um, I think that's so, so great. Well, I, I want to make sure we get to everything. I, I, you know, Dr. Cropper, I just feel like we're, we're only getting started, but that's the, that's the nature of these things. You know, we just, we give an idea and, you know, we hope we activate something in people that make it more interesting. But, um, but you know, the, the last part is, so, so we, we started with the task. We have the prior knowledge. We've got the demonstrations. Um, we've got the, the real-world scenario that's robust. I love that. I love that you described it that way. It's robust, so we can, we can show that the whole might be bigger than the sum of the parts so they can really see it. And, um, and then finally, we come to integration, where learning is promoted when learners integrate their new skills into everyday life. Now, this is the one I think that is the hardest one for me, and I, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about this because when I teach this, I always feel like I come up short with explaining this one because the number one question I get a lot of times from my students is, but how do we measure that? I mean, how, how is it that, you know, what, what do we do so that we know if they're actually integrating these new skills or not. I mean, of course, a lot of times we can go to Kirkpatrick and some other models, but just in, sen in the sense of keeping it within this model, how, how, does, how do you, how do you um, handle this piece when you're do doing work with clients and work with educators, work with trainers? How do you teach them how to do this, this piece? What, what, are your, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think one of the models that I created, uh, I called the events of learning. And, and it, uh, it identifies kind of in parallel what, what an instructor may be doing. And then uh, on, the, on the side, it identifies what the learner is doing. Because when everything's said and done, the most important thing is what the learner is doing. And one of the, one of the steps that I've included is that the learner plans performance in the real world. And uh, 
uh, where this came about, I I'd, uh, worked for Novell for a while and helped coordinate some training for uh, network administrators. And they'd come into classes and uh, they'd have expert instructors at the front of the class. They'd show them how to do something, you know, add a patch or manage uh, users or whatever. And then they'd have racks of networks in the back of the classroom and the students would go back to the back and then they'd, they'd practice doing, you know, whatever they'd learned. And then they'd go back to the, up to the front and they'd get some more instruction demonstration. They'd go back to the back and work, do, do whatever on these networks. Well, ultimately, they would have to plan what they were going to do when they went back to their work site you know, with whatever version of network they had. And so uh, uh, network administrators get a lot of good evaluation because right. any right. time there's, right. there's a problem, they hear about it very right. quickly. Right. And so there's very fast. A, yeah, right. So there's the evaluation and the feedback. But the point, it, the, ultimately, the point is, They'd have to go back and plan, okay, how, I'm, how am I going to add this patch? Am I going to upgrade to the next version? They basically have to plan and do it, and then, of course, they're going to get feedback. And so, but an important part is that planning. Now, now Merrill, Merrill focuses on the five, what he thinks are the five most important principles, and I agree, but you'll notice that he doesn't include evaluation. He doesn't include right. feedback. He doesn't include planning for performance, but they're understood. Right. For, for integration, right. you've got to plan performance, and you may have to plan how you're going to, you know, evaluate yourself or have, have others evaluate right. you. But ultimately, if you can perform the task correctly that you've, you've learned through five-star instruction, then, uh, you know, that's what five-star instruction is all about. That's what first principles is all about, that you can perform these significant tasks, you know, at work, in the real world, uh, whatever situation you're in. Yeah, that's so good. So it's, it's, it's really baked in, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're performing, then, you know, but if you're giving them real world scenarios and they're really performing it. So what a real world scenario, if you're a trainer at a corporation and you're trying to teach them how to um, fill out their timesheet, which is complicated, let's just say, um, well, then you got to give them an actual timesheet. Yeah. I mean, then you're going to know that when they go to, when they go to do it two weeks from now, you know, that they're gonna, they've already seen it. I mean, you know, and so that's, that's the important piece is, is it's baked in, you know, it, it, it right. should be. You know? And so we don't, we don't keep the, the, the students, the learners from the actual work. We don't keep them. It's funny that you say that because when I, I, I'm, I took over the program director job for the master's of science um, in instructional design and technology at St. Thomas in January. And one of the things I noticed right away when I took it over was that the, the final course is a practicum. They made it a practicum and I thought to myself, oh, that's really great. Okay, good. Practical. I like it. So I went in and looked at it and I noticed that they had them do a research project. Well, that doesn't, I, I, I mean, immediately I thought, 
Okay. Well, that, why would they do that? Why, why did that? So I'm in the process, uh, you know, it takes, you know, it takes some time to fix these things, but right. I'm in the process of saying, no, we ought to have them build a course. Project. If they've, yeah, let's put a project together. That's real world. Look, you know, here's go, go get yourself a, a, a free version of canvas. Here's a, you know, turn in week two, you're going to turn in a, a course map, which you should already be able to do. Maybe we're only going to do three modules. We're not going to do a big full fledged course, but maybe we can do something that's three modules long, tiny little thing, you know, but the problem is see a lot of times we're not thinking that real world scenario. Well, I mean, so, you know, I figure that by the end of the year, I'll have it I'll have it changed over, but you know, there's all these things you got to go through and you got to fix it and accreditation and yada, 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 yada. But the thing is, is that that's what we're talking about. You've got to be able to look at these courses, these things that you're doing, and you've got to be able to say, what's the ultimate outcome that's real? You know, what's, so what? At the end of the day, so what? You know, and I think what you're saying here is that's the beauty of Merrill's work is that it's all kind of baked in. If you're doing this, the so what is obvious because from the very beginning, you said we want them to be able to do this. And and these are the and this is what they got to be able to do to do that. Is that right what I'm saying? A absolutely. And and what's ironic is uh uh we think it's hard to do in an online environment. Right. But but you just have to be slightly creative to say, how are we going to have them do application? Because you can do demonstration and do a lot of things, but right. Ap right. Applic application, uh, you have to think, okay, well, what, how am I going to have them apply it? Am I going to have them uh, video, you know, doing the application? Am I going to have them uh, create something and share it? And so... Uh, you have to be thinking online, offline tasks. Okay, how do we have them perform this task correctly and intelligently and demonstrate that they've done it? And, right. and so uh, typically our online application, well, not ours, most online application is a little true-false quiz. <laughs> Right, right, and, right, and, and that's the right. whole—that's the whole application, and exactly right. And, right, and and I mentioned text entry. Text entry allows participants to actually uh, make decisions and plans and and res, you know give responses, you know, without the multiple choice cues, and so you know there's some exactly you can do online, right. but. But of course, more ro more robust application, you you may have to be more creative. Yeah, and I and I think that is an issue that we're we're having with with you know online online ed is that you know it, it these things are they, they, you do have to do a lot of planning. It's not just right like you said. It's easy to make a quiz, but a quiz doesn't really measure skill. It just measures what you know maybe. I mean, especially you're right with the cues of multiple choice. I mean, you know it. You have a you know, you have a certain percentage of chance that you're going to get within two of them anyway. I mean, there's just, there's so much that plays into that. Whereas if you make them actually do something, um, if you have them actually do something based on an actual scenario, you're going to have a much better understanding of what they actually know and what they can actually do. And then later, like, like Merrill says, apply it to them, to their own, 
you know, their own experiences. And I mean, that's where somebody like Kirkpatrick who built a whole, you know, evaluation system, you know, that's where they ultimately go to does what, what's the initial reaction. And then, but ultimately are they applying it in such a way that it's making change in the organization that it's another level of, of evaluation, but it's the same idea. It's, you know, did they get any skills that actually is changing their output or changing the way that they do? Or are we reducing mistakes? You know, like you said about IT, are we reducing tickets? Yes. You know, did tickets go down? I mean, you know, is that, or, 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 or maybe tickets aren't going down, but response times and fixes are faster. You know, yeah. you, your, you know, it, it depends on what your objective is, your ultimate right. objective is, and, and and what tasks are going to be need. So, if the objective, although we might write an objective, reduce number of of online trouble tickets, you know, that's not an objective because we have to set, ask ourselves what we said the very first is okay. So, what are the skills involved? What what tasks have to be performed at every level that that can happen? So this is a much bigger problem than just reduce tickets. You right. know, it's it's because now you have users and what they need. You have managers and what the IT people what they need. I mean, you've got so many different issues here. And so, again, after having all said all of that, we come back to what are the tasks and right. being focused on the tasks. Yeah. Well, so let me, let me, we got to wrap this up, Doctor Cropper. This has been—I mean, I, like I said, we could talk for another hour, but and maybe we'll have you back. But um, I would like to just ask you a final question, which is, what what are you know? We've got people that are listening to this today, and they're that some of them their mind is blown. I mean, that's good. You know, I think I think blowing our mind is is always a good thing. Some people are are teaching courses right now. They're going to be teaching in the next term. Some people are are you know. They're, maybe they're maybe they're an SME on a course. Maybe they're. I mean, there's just so many different things that could be happening. Maybe you have instructional designers who are trying to, you know, are are hearing this and they're that a lot of ideas are going. What's the, you know, I think I know the answer. I think I know what your answer is going to be, but I'm going to ask anyway. What's the very? What's the next thing that they can do? You know, what's the? How do they kind of move? What's the best thing that they can do to try to move toward um, putting this together, uh, having this? you know, designing and, and then also facilitating five-star instruction, whatever they're doing, what, what's the best next step for them? Uh, just generally, I mean, I know that everybody's a little bit different, but what, what would you say that is for them? Well, I think the, I think the first step is to, uh, 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 read a few of Dave Merrill's papers and then, uh, Figure out if you already if it's easy to identify the real world tasks, just start doing it, and start start building those into your uh, building your instruction around real, real world tasks. Uh, study as pebble in the pond art, uh, chapter or uh, right. paper, right? Um, and those who are having a hard time um, identifying real world tasks, then then. Uh, what Merrill does is he'll ask why. He'll ask, why, well, why do you teach this? You know, what are real-world tasks? You know, like for biology. He asked a biology teacher, okay, why do you teach this? And he kept asking why, and, and finally they came, well, we'd like them to be able to use biological solutions to solve real-world problems. Okay, well, what are some of those real-world problems? 
You know, so, so if you're right. a biology teacher, a philosophy teacher, psychology teacher, then st start asking those questions Well, until you can come up with, well, what are some real-world problems and scenarios that we would like our, you know, learners to be able to solve? And so, uh, ultimately, the key is coming up with the, scenario, the right scenarios and then, then you just have to say, okay, well, which ones are we going to use for demonstration? Which ones are we going to use for application? Do we need a progression of problems? Uh, Merrill talks about, you know, sometimes you need a progression of problems, practice with more than one problem and more, more than one variation so that learners can, can master all the variations. And uh, mm -hmm. so, uh, but I'm, uh, if you need help, contact me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there a is there a is there a a rubric that's available online somewhere that a person could do the analysis of their course? Kind of what you've been talking about that you have this baseline where Merrill scored it at a zero. <laughs> you know, is there is there something out there that the average person can go get, or is that something that they really need to contact you directly for? I mean, is there something that a person like myself who has a lot of courses under me? Is there a way that I can begin to use something like that to, to try to understand where it stands? I want to get the news, kind of like Mrs. Clark. I want to know the news so I can start working on this and making it better. Is there a way for me to do that? Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll send you a, a simplified rubric. Uh, the one we used for the dissertation was very detailed, but I'll send you a simplified version. And it's Great. Pretty, pretty easy to use. And they can All right, contact me also that in the notes yeah well let's 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 close with that where can where can they contact you if they if they want to talk to you or if they want to get some you know if there's something that that they want to be able to uh, discuss with you what's the best way to get a hold of you well it's easy to contact me on linkedin uh or uh, you can email me at maxcropper at gmail.com uh, okay those are probably the easiest all right That'll be great. So, uh, and, and like I said, I'll include, when you send that to me, I'll include that a rubric in the notes for everybody so they can start to use it. But, you know, just like anything else, folks, I mean, you start to use it, you're going to run into problems. Uh, Dr. Cropper is a perfect person to shoot an email to and, and get some get some help as you're, as you're doing this. Because, listen, good instructional design and good instruction matters. It matters. And it matters for the efficacy of not only our programming, but for the efficacy of the skills being out there, people doing good work. And we want, that's where the value is going to be. The value in your program is that it changes a person's ability to do work better and with more knowledge behind it. And that's great. Dr. Cropper, thanks so much for being a part of this today. Your time is valuable. I, I appreciate it so much. Our listeners appreciate it. And um, we look forward to maybe having you back sometime and talking a little bit more about uh, this and other things that you've, you've published on. So thanks so much for being a part of our show today. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. All right. Well, that's all we have for today's uh, edition of the Digital Instructor. Join us next time as we continue to talk about what matters in education, what matters in digital environments, and how you can become a rock star digital instructor in your own right. God bless you. See you later. Thanks. Thanks.